Today on Peace Talks Radio, forgiveness on a grand scale, as the family of murdered American anti-apartheid activist Amy Beale worked together with two men who were involved in her 1993 murder in South Africa. We want to inform you that your daughter has been killed. And I said, yes, yes, I've heard that. But what happened? And when they saw this white kid, they smashed in a window, stoned a car. The men who had, who had killed Amy were seeking amnesty. And it was when I started talking about Amy personally, all four of the guys who had been sort of sitting like this, you know, very With their stern, eyes cast their down. Eye, yeah, started looking at us. Bringing the bridge closer together. Let's forgive and reconcile one another. And then they started calling me Makulu. Oh, what's that? Grandmother. And my husband, Dom Kulu. It's like, what is this? I think they adopted us. <laughs> All today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio. I'm Paul Ingalls. And here's a 71-year-old woman. His wife called and said, are you busy? And I said, no, I've got some friends here. They're talking about where to go to dinner. And she said, we're going to pick you up. Talking about who, do you think? They picked me up with their three little girls. And they said, it's a special day. And I said, what is it? And she said, it's our ninth anniversary. And I, I was at the wedding. Talking about maybe a niece or a nephew. Father, mother, three kids. He's got three little girls to boot. No boy, now they won't do it anymore. But, so we laugh about things. Someone pretty close anyway, family or like family. And they took me to the airport when I left. And it's just the two of them. And, you know, I used to have to give them money for parking at the airport or gas or something. I said, you know, can I give you? They said, no, you have done so much for us. Now we can do it for you. So the woman is actually Linda Beale. And the people she's talking about call her Mikulu, meaning grandmother. And the man she's talking about lives with his family in South Africa. In 1993, the man she's referring to, Tobeko Penny, was involved in a mob beating and stabbing death of Linda Beale's own daughter, Amy Beale, then a 26-year-old Fulbright scholar who was in South Africa volunteering to help end apartheid. Penny and three other young men were convicted and sent to prison for the incident. Then, through the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and with the support of Linda Beale and her husband, Amy's father, Peter, the four men were granted amnesty after serving about five years of their sentence. Today on Peace Talks Radio, not only the story of forgiveness that helped set those men free, but the story of how a couple of the men granted amnesty wound up working with Peter and Linda in the South African version of two foundations that were set up in Amy's name to help improve relations between blacks and whites in South Africa and improve conditions for young people in the South African townships. Those men and their families are now like family for Linda Beale and were for her husband, Peter, Peter died of cancer in 2002. Peter is a, I call it Tamkulu. Tamkulu means uh, grandfather, a person that can spoil children. That's Easy No Famela, one of the other men who served time for Amy's death and was granted amnesty. person who understands the situation here in South Africa better than the whites here in South Africa. A person who has Ubuntu care and love. That's easy saying on our not-too-good phone line from South Africa that Peter Beale seemed to know better about what was going on there in South Africa than the whites who lived there. We'll hear more from Easy later in our program. 
But now back to Linda Beale talking with Megan Camrick about how the word of her daughter Amy's death wound its way to her in late August 1993, just a few days before Amy was due to return to the United States. My daughter Molly was working in Washington, D.C., and she had a bit of a high profile, and the State Department, I guess, had called our house. Um, My son was 16, and I, I was out actually getting him ready to start school again with some new shoes and stuff, you know, and we were out and weren't home. And Molly got a call then from the State Department and uh, found, all they said is she was killed. They didn't know exactly what happened. And my husband was on a business trip, so Molly found him and got my daughter Kim. Then finally I walked in, in the house and my daughter Kim said, are you sitting down? You know, everyone says that to you. Are you sitting down? And I'm like, no, I'm standing as usual in the kitchen telephone, you know. And, and then she said, well, Amy's dead. And so that was sort of just the message. And first of all, I think you feel like, what? You know, uh, what is, what's going And then I could just tell the, the flatness of the, of the voice, you know. And Kim didn't know much. I did get a hold of my husband. It was before cell phones, too, you know. So he didn't know anything either. But then the ambassador called. Uh, Princeton Lyman was the ambassador to South Africa at the time, and he is, I can hear his voice. It's, it was very lovely. He's a, he was father of three daughters, very calm, and he said, you know, we want to inform you that your daughter has been killed. And I said, yes, yes, I've heard that. But what happened? You just had to find out, you know, first, I think. You know, and he said, well, we're not sure what happened. And then I got off the phone again, and it rang, and it was a reporter from um, a newspaper in Johannesburg. So I finally got some answers. He knew, you know, well, it was a, it was a mob in Guguletu, and there was, a, you know, as politically, he, he seemed to know what was going on. Some friends asked if she would give them a lift to Guguletu, a black township on the outskirts of Cape Town. They wanted to be dropped at the police station. Part of a BBC documentary which interviewed Amy's father, the late Peter Beale, who retold the story of Amy Beale's death. They departed the University of the Western Cape about uh, 4.25, 4.30, something like that. And they came into Guguletu um, and approaching the Caltech station. There was a truck stalled in the road being stoned. Amy came up behind it, um, and that's that's where she was attacked. Uh, she never got a chance to drop her friends at the police station. There was a lot of violent unrest during the change from apartheid to democracy, and Amy had run into a crowd of young people who had just been at a political gathering of the Pan-African Congress Party. The PAC, as it was known, was urging students to take direct action to make the country ungovernable. The PAC slogan at the time was one settler, one bullet. And these young people were very angry. This is one of Amy's school colleagues, Rhoda Kadali. It was an anger that was almost endorsed by the liberation struggle because they'd had enough of the apartheid government. And when they saw this white kid, they smashed in her window, stoned her car. And Amy was pulled out of the car, was stabbed, and died before help could arrive. Again, Linda Beale with Megan Camrick, talking about the questions a reporter on the phone from Johannesburg was asking her the day after Amy's death. He then started asking me, are you angry? Mm. What do you feel? And it's like, 
I actually know why Amy was there, and she was working for the cause, and she was committed to the cause, and I, I know a lot about what was going on. And she explained so in detail what these young men were like, that what was happening there, what the townships were like. And I kind of felt, you know, I, I'm not angry or bitter. I really need to understand. And I think we were very proud of Amy. We also knew that the elections were still being negotiated. There hadn't been a date set. And Amy wanted that election to happen they were trying to find out if you're angry and you're bitter. And I think we realized that if we acted that way, we had sort of a negative power because I think as time went on within the next few weeks, white South Africans were writing editorial, seeing how this happened, and now what? What are we going to be, have here? We're going to have a bloodbath. You know, there was that aspect. And then there were others who said, you know, a Amy was so important to her cause. So it was a very difficult thing. But in reality, we were not bitter I, or, or angry because I, I, I think we understood the context through Amy. It was a conscious thing. We had to think about it. We had to make choices. We had to, to react, I think, both in, in, in her honor and memory and, and a bit, you know, I, I think to support as Mandela called his book, A Long Walk to Freedom. And there, there, was, there were options for us. We could have said, huh, you know, let's, let's get out of this. But we, we just, well, we actually thought, I think, if we gave him a couple of interviews and said we'd support the process, it would be over. And it just never quite ended. <laughs> well, you, well, you went to South, uh, South Africa really, what, six weeks? Not too long after. Uh, uh, she was we killed. had a rolling fax machine in our house in those days. My husband did international business, and he always had it on at night. And all night long with the time change, it would roll, it would roll. And you'd cut these things off, and you'd read, the, when are you coming? When are you coming? When Who was sending them? All kinds of people, but mostly people that she worked with and a lot of the people in, in the black community. We got these faxes. There were a few we responded to. We got letters from Coretta Scott King, who said, you know, I will be marching in Washington in a few days for Martin, but I will be thinking of Amy. We got Mandela letters. We got some awful racist letters. I mean, it was, it was, it was chaos. I, I, I don't actually know how I survived that. I think that was so awful. But we, we then finally got official invitation from the University of the Western Cape from the city of Cape Town and the ANC. Not, not, de Klerk was still president. We did not hear from those people. And so the invitation was uh, to come to South Africa. They, South African Airways flew us, first, flew us all first class. We, they put us up at a very nice hotel, the Intercontinental. But then the University of Cape, uh, Western Cape took over, and we were picked up every morning in combis and went into the townships, saw little projects, went into schools with no books. What was it like to see the townships, to know these are the people it, that Amy was there working for? Well, that was key. People told my husband, my late husband, saying, oh, you shouldn't take your family there. But, you know, had we not gone to see, I think, in reality, I think we knew it conceptually and intellectually, sort of, but to actually be there, it was pretty daunting. And the level of poverty, the, the depth of the oppression and the conditions that people were living in. And it was very important that we saw that. Why did you decide to start the foundation? Did that idea start on that trip? Yeah, but it wasn't our idea. <laughs> people would give you these big hugs. You know, you go into the school and then they'd 
they'd wrap their arms around you know the big mamas and they'd love you and they'd sing to you and this and that and then they'd say and when are you coming to help it's like you know we kind of all looked at each other then they would take us into the principal's office at the school and they'd say look our copy machine is broken it's like okay okay well we need a new Didn't copy machine Didn't this seem odd that your this it's, is a place your daughter died It seemed very odd huh. Plus the fact that it was, why do you need the copy machine? It's the old Xerox machines. I don't know how many we saw like that. Well, they're out of the liquid or the toner or whatever they use. They're broken. But the reason they needed it is because they would have one book in each subject for the kids. So they were copying, no matter about the copyright, they were copying the book. So the kids had little, they could, you know, make little Xerox b- books for them. Well, we also had been sent money in the U.S., so we had our little 501c3, and I thought, okay, we will probably do a few little things. But you had to be careful, too, because once you go someplace and they expect money, then then we were smart enough to know that you get kind of sucked into these things, and you really had to think it through. And so we didn't make any promises. But even just showing up, people thought you were going to do things, which was a little bit scary through a, a number of situations I ran into because just showing up, their expectations, okay. And then you come back and they say, well, where's your money? I mean, I think it was a naivete, but it was also the way so many of these people got money. It's sort of almost mm-hmm. a begging and almost making you you know, feel guilty kind of thing. But then in 1997, around the time we had been doing a few things and around the time of the amnesty hearing. um, This is the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission? Yes, yes. And that was in July 1997. So they had arrested four men who were in prison for killing her. They were sentenced for murder and public violence, and they were in prison, and they were convicted by the judge. One judge reading this verdict forever and ever, but yeah. And And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which still is kind of singular in world history in the way it, it Their addressed approach, yes. they, they, these crimes. They, they looked at Nuremberg. They looked at some of the other tribunals, and they wanted to try a more restorative process to tr- promote the healing of the country. That's what Tutu said. To, it's to promote healing because people can say, well, it didn't do what it was supposed to do, and there were issues. But it it was not to solve all the problems, but start a process. What? So you were going to the men who had who had killed Amy were seeking amnesty. Yeah, but it was also they didn't want to at the beginning. But it was their it was their leaders that said you do it, and so they did apply, and they were given their application was accepted. So they they had to come before the TRC. They had to say what they were doing, what they did, basically confess. Then they had to prove that they were indeed. A, a legal sort of card-carrying member of their political, not just party. It was really movement, and it was uh, you know they had manifestos. They had to sign. They mm-hmm. had to sign that for life, actually. So they had to prove that they weren't just out there doing trouble stuff. You know that they actually had a cause. Now they did not have to apologize or show remorse. Did you want that? No, we said we want to support the process. A lot of people thought we advocated for their release. We did not. We said we want to support South Africa's process. So we went. We I attended a few sessions of the trial just to see what it was like, not a jury and how it operated. But in the TRC, um, you know, when they gave us a date, we were doing things in South Africa, and we we said to Desmond Tutu, "What would you suggest? How do you think we should?" approach a, a little bit of time that we were supposed to speak or could speak. He said, you know, just tell them about Amy 
and speak from your heart. What does that mean exactly? But so we put together a little bio, and it was when I started talking about Amy personally and what she was like. All four of the guys who had been sort of sitting like this, you know, very with their stern, eyes cast their down, eye, yeah, started looking at us because they thought she was propaganda. It made her human. It made her a person. And her, their parents were there, and their parents were listening. We were parents in this together, and that is sort of the spirit of Ubuntu that, that is sort of the bedrock, which Tutu has said the, the process of a person as a person through other persons was there. And, and so um, Easy was asked, kind of in a prosecuting kind of tone of voice, if you had known that Amy Beale was, going to, was working for your cause, would you have killed her? Now, if he, if he wanted to be nice, he'd say, no, we're so sorry. We'd, he mm-hmm. didn't do that. He says, no, we, we would have found her better for our cause alive than dead. Now, that was the truth, and so that was what they were supposed to speak, the truth. If he had sugarcoated it, I think it wouldn't have been the truth. So as that day ended, um, we, it was sort of a day and a half kind of an event. We were walking out, and they came, they were being taken back to the prison in a truck, and it was waiting outside. And we were coming through the passageway to leave the court, away from the press, actually. And there they were. And they, they shook our hands, and they said, please forgive us. They asked for forgiveness. They didn't have to do that. But it was great. It did not happen in front of the cameras or you know, in, in the, the hearing itself. It happened personally. I don't think at that moment when we saw them that we ever thought we'd have a personal relationship with them. I think we kind of felt, you know, it, it was positive and we would go on. We were starting to really work hard in the, in the townships. But when they got out, when they were released, they found that things had not changed in their communities. In fact, some of it was worse. And they, their comrades, who, who were friends that they grew up with and in the movement with, were doing drugs and drinking more alcohol, no jobs, and re- or using their skills to uh, hijack cars and, and armored trucks. And they, re- you know, they were just committing crimes. But they decided to start a youth group. They had been activists. They wanted change in their And this community. is those two, I think. Yeah, those the other two, two men. Right, yeah. Did the other two join. men. Well, one was uh, a mental age of a nine year old, and the other one mm. was a little bit more. Uh, Easy and Tobacco called him a thug. I do know his mother and his sister, but he, he really he went back to prison. So this so. is Easy and Tobacco. Yeah, so this is yeah. Easy and Tobacco. And they were actually being interviewed by an anthropologist from Cal Berkeley who was studying them. And um, she. She said, so would you like to see the Beals? And they said, yes. And my husband was over there. My, Molly was having her first child, so I, hadn't, I was mm-hmm. not there with him at the time. And she's, she brought him out to meet them. They checked him out to see if he was carrying a gun and things like that. But eventually they sat down, and they wanted to know where I was. And he said, well, she's coming next week. And they just kind of sat around in Easy's little house and talked and they said, and we've started a youth group, and et cetera. So I get there, and I walk in, and Easy said I was shy. I wasn't really shy. I was just kind of looking around, I think. But he says I'm one of seven brothers. And I go, oh, and I pull out a picture of my week-old grandson. This is my grandson. <gasps> Makulu. And I go, oh, what's that? Grandmother. And then they started calling me Makulu and my husband Dom Kulu. It's like, what is this? 
they invited us to come out to a Sunday evening meeting in the townships that watch what they were doing with their youth group. They showed us the Constitution they had made and their goals and objectives. And, and so we kind of said, well, what do you want? Well, they wanted us to, to be involved in a launch and support it. They did not ask for money. We did give them T-shirts, and we also got them tickets to go see Robben Island, the prison, and all that kind of stuff, just thinking they wanted to get them out of the townships to relieve stress and see other things. So they were very clever. They got people who worked in Cape Town, had monthly train t- tickets. So on Saturday, they gathered them all up, and they took you know a dozen, two dozen of these young people out on these hikes. But what they really needed and what they eventually said was, we know you are starting programs, block making, welding, skill development, sewing, you know, co-ops and things like that, where they had a skill where they could actually make money. They were really aware that we were doing things to help create functional youth that that went through the struggle times and, and give them the skills they don't have to resort to crime and violence. That was our mission. What So now I think... They've, they now work for your foundation, is that correct? They do. Um, Did you, I mean, is it odd to have this now longstanding deep relationship with the men who, who saw Amy's last moments, who were responsible for her death? It was much more natural. I, I think when they named me Makulu, and then at this launch for the youth group, there was this sort of head table. They brought in people from the community to sing and dance for us, and they did a little program, and it said, Linda Beale, mother of us all, please tell us of your experiences. A little farther down, Peter Beale, father of us all, help us. They wanted him to help in business, help us develop our skills or something like that. It's like, I think they adopted us. <laughs> I think that's what it really came down to. Have people ever said to you, like, why would you stay there and do that? Why not just walk away after you've come to a resolution about her death? Well, you know, kind of got in our blood. What do you think uh, Amy would think about all the things you're doing? Well, my personal feeling is that she had enough of the critical mind that she would say, oh, I don't know that that's a good idea. (laughs) You know, and the other thing is I have found people that cope with their lives, with death, with the living conditions they're in, and they still have a sense of humor. And and getting to know Desmond Tutu is kind of my mentor, um, and particularly after Peter died, he was great um, for me. And I, I could say, well, maybe we shouldn't do this bakery because we just had a driver shot and killed. I mean, there were really bad things that happened. And then he said, no, no, you, you must do it. You can do it. When Peter died, it was colon cancer. And at the end, I was trying to keep him involved. He says, you can do it. Hmm. And I, I think I, I accepted the challenge. And I, I think it's more common than people realize that the need to be positive, to fill a void, and to go on in honor and in, you know, in honoring that person you lost in some way is a part of us as much, if not more, than anger and bitterness. Linda Beale, the mother of Amy Beale, the 26-year-old anti-apartheid activist and Fulbright scholar who was killed in mob violence in South Africa in 1993. Next, we'll hear more from one of the men who was imprisoned for Amy's murder and who wound up being forgiven by the Beals and working with their foundation named after their daughter. The story of forgiveness continues in a moment on Peace Talks Radio.
I'm Paul Ingalls. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to reduce or resolve conflict nonviolently between us and others, we cover it here on Peace Talks Radio. And sometimes we have the chance to retell a story of extraordinary forgiveness that resolves a conflict, as we are today, in this story involving two of the four men convicted of participating in the youth mob murder of anti-apartheid activist and student Amy Beale, a 26-year-old U.S. citizen who was helping in South Africa in 1993. Easy Nofamela and Topeko Penny were granted amnesty in 1998 as a result of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Linda and Peter Beale, Amy's parents, supported the process that resulted in their release from prison after five years of their sentence. But then they got to know Easy and then Topeko and hired them to work for the Amy Beale Foundation to improve conditions in their townships. 43 years old at the time of our 2015 interview, Easy Nofamela talked with us on a not-too-good phone connection from his home in South Africa. He makes his living as a driver and giving township tours. He started working with the Amy Beale Foundation in about 2000, running a bakery, but they had to shut it down pretty soon after because week after week, says Easy, bakery drivers were being shot in the still conflict-ridden township. Since then, he's taught sports to young people, swimming and soccer, football there, of course. Football is, is, is playing football. So also, uh, another sport. Are you pretty good? Yes. <laughs> I'm good, boy, really. Yes, I'm good. Mm-hmm. But, see, growing man. Yeah. I can play. Do your muscles get sore now that you're older? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's true that's true so much running in football you have to be in good condition yes you have to be in good condition that's it yeah. yes. over the years of working with uh, young people in your township what do you feel has helped the most what do you feel best about having helped accomplish in your work with young people you see, in the township, you, it's not easy to succeed. It's but not easy there to succeed, he says. And trouble, drugs, and crime beckon young people from all directions. So any sports or learning a trade keeps young people from wandering down the path to jail. So it makes me also proud, also full of energy, getting full of energy to do more, you see. You're giving them something else yes. to do besides get in trouble and get into drugs and violence. Yes. Mm-hmm. To keep the kids out of the street, the kids out of the the court. You see a better a better future for them. Better future for them. Yes, right. When they want to swim, I take out take them out of the that environment they grew up to another environment. So I I just talk them prison. Prison is not a place for them. What they need is education. And this was the same message he said he heard Amy Beale's parents saying about him when he was serving his sentence in jail. Easy didn't really trust the truth and reconciliation process so much that was developing in 1996 and 1997 that was offering amnesty in exchange for truth-telling of crimes and atrocities during the strife-filled years in South Africa. He thought it was all kind of a sellout, he said in other interviews. But something started to change when he began to hear and see the Beals being interviewed during the TRC process. It's every time they talk over the radio, television, 
say the same thing. When I was alone, sitting and thinking about, I want to claim my childhood. I want to be easy no female. So I want not to be told to do. I want to be myself out of the shoes of the militant, be a civilian. He's saying take the shoes off of a militant and be a civilian. So when I become a civilian, it's easy to me to forgive first myself rather than to, to forgive other people. That makes change when I claim my identity to be childhood. We're speaking with Easy Nofamela from South Africa. Easy, an anthropologist, Nancy Shepard Hughes, who was working with you after your release, helped get you together with Linda and Peter Beale. Can you tell our listeners something about that meeting? It was it was 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 bringing the bridge closer together because Nancy she she do a great job. What she does is she came to my parents' house and she wanted to speak with me and want to ask me some questions, including the question, "How about bringing Peter Beale over to his house sometime?" Easy thought she was joking at first, but said, "Yeah, okay." And she brought Peter Beale to Easy's house. Easy starts laughing, thinking about it. <laughs> oh, Peter. Peter is a, I call Tamkul. Tamkul means oh, grandfather. A person that can spoil children. A person who understands the situation here in South Africa better than the whites here in South Africa. A person who has Ubuntu care and laugh. He, he came to my house and we talk and we asked Linda and then he said Linda will come, he's in the, she's in the state. And then Linda, after, I think after a week or two weeks, and then she came with Linda. From there, we become too close, too much, uh, become Tamkulu, Mapulu, and two children, two sons. Myself and Tobacco. <laughs> Let's forgive and reconcile one another. They understand uh, we've been involved in in their daughter's death, but the way they handle and they handle the, 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 the environment here in South Africa, we we raise our hands up. It is really a parent see Your many years of collaborating with the Beale family after being involved in Amy's death has seemed extraordinary to many. What lessons do you think it all represents for people listening who may be faced with having to resolve big and small conflicts in their own lives? First is a respect among the people. You are not a, a, a bigger than other person. We are all being one the same. If we have a problem, we need to talk about the problem. Once you sit down and talk with another that has a very different experience than you, in this case, whites and blacks, what are some suggestions about talking together better? People need to, to adopt other people's uh, uh, um how do you call it, um, maybe I can say style or culture, 
because if you can look in the white uh, uh, areas, a neighbor and another neighbor that doesn't know each other. So also they are distanced from us. That's what we're trying to bring, to understand us, to understand them. If I'm fighting with my neighbor as well, they are as neighbors, they come and try to call these two neighbors sit down and talk. You become now the same person in the same problem that you need to be solved. You see? Yes. Because whites, they can make sure that they understand us and us understand the whites. If there is a problem, we sit down and talk, then it will be better. How is life between whites and blacks in South Africa today? Would you say there's been improvement and what needs improving still? Well, there's a big improvement, I'm telling you. Because my generation, we used to grow up when my parents used to say, stay at home. When you see a white person, you must run away because you can be uh, disappeared or arrested or be beaten. Today, children, our children, my children, when you see the white person, they jump on, on them. They talk. They, there's no fear. They laugh. They talk. They're laughing. You can see both when the uh, visitors, when they talk the kids with the kids. You can see the you can see the care, you can see the kids that they need. You see the understanding. Also, when the visitor coming, we talk with them. We said, "Listen, now this is not a South African issues, a problems in the world. This is a world problem. We need to solve." So in life here in South Africa, between whites and blacks is fine. There are whites staying in Kuguletu, in the township, enjoying life. We need talk. There's no problem. Yeah, what we need, we need also to, um, like, uh, exchange program where we can organize maybe schools or three schools, the township schools, and overseas, or white schools, Kids are talking one another. When they're talking, like asking questions, someone stand up and talk. When when they, when when you do that, also coming and visit, sleep over in the township to their friends, friends. In that way, they can look themselves and brothers and sisters a different. A, a, a total different generation. Easy, Nofamela, I want to thank you for talking to yes. me today. Okay, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you very much. Easy, Nofamela, working with the Amy Beale Foundation, South African Wing, and the Beale family, despite having served time in the 1990s for his role in the youth mob murder of Amy Beale, the American student who was killed in 1993 while she was researching and advocating an end to apartheid in South Africa. Next up, a British journalist who has captured dozens of similar extraordinary stories about forgiveness and gathered them into an exhibition and a book. That's when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. 
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today we've been considering just one extraordinary story of forgiveness. British journalist Marina Cantacuzino included the Beals story, along with dozens more, in a project she developed called The Forgiveness Project. She's also releasing a book called The Forgiveness Project, Stories for a Vengeful Age. Well, my background's journalism, and I always knew that people's own stories that seemed to get people interested. And it was the lead-up to the war in Iraq. And I felt I wanted to get first-person narratives, personal stories from people who had sought peaceful solutions to violence. So in a way, it, it was the only thing I could do. I felt like I wanted to make a personal response. And all I could do as a journalist was to collect stories. In the end, I collected, I did the interviews, and I was working with a photographer who did the photographs. And we collected 26 stories from various parts of the world, from victims and perpetrators of crime and violence. Uh, I suppose you could say that all of them were drawing a line under the dogma of vengeance. And all of them had lined themselves up for forgiveness. Um, and the stories told me that forgiveness was not easy, it was not simple, it was difficult, it was complex, it was risky, it was costly, but it was potentially transformative to people's lives. Um, but I was lucky to meet someone called Anita Roddick, who sadly has died, but she's a social entrepreneur. She was. She was the founder of The Body Shop. And she was very moved by these stories, and she said to me, you need to put this on as an exhibition. This was in January 2004 in London. And she said, put it, put it on as an exhibition. She'd pay for it. Uh, and that's what we did. I describe it really as journalism on the wall because it's first-person narratives alongside strong portraits. And, and I thought my life would go back to journalism, but nothing I'd ever done before had grabbed the public's attention like that had. And I was just absolutely inundated and overwhelmed by the response to these these very authentic stories of forgiveness. I never planned it, and I had no experience of running an organisation, which I've done now for 10 years. Um, and the Forgiveness Project is an, orga- an organisation that sets out to examine, explore, unpick forgiveness through narrative. I see it as a place of inquiry because I'm very against dogma, Uh, So I like people just to read the stories and make up their own minds. And I think that's why it works, basically, because we're not Mm. telling anyone to do anything. Right. You you called the uh, exhibition, and maybe continue to call it, the F word. Let me have you talk about the, the choice of that. Yes. The reason for that was during that year that I was collecting the stories, I... I started out with this very idealistic idea of forgiveness, and I actually set out to collect stories of people who'd forgiven the unforgivable. And it was then that I realized that actually forgiveness meant so many different things to so many people. And some people had limits to forgiveness. There were some things they would forgive and some things that they wouldn't. 
Uh, that's why I called it the F word, because I realised it was actually a dirty word for many people. It, well, it inspired many people, but equally it affronted many people. We'll talk more about that line that is drawn in public opinion about forgiveness, in, uh, as you've discovered in exploring it. Yeah, I found that it um, cut public opinion down the middle like a guillotine. So people either loved it or hated it. I think the reason it gets bad press, which it does, is for two reasons. One, it is generally seen by many people as to let people off the hook, as excusing and condoning and a weakness. And the other reason is there's a lot of language around forgiveness, which I think is exclusive. It's seen as, um, it, it can be, I think, over-spiritualized. The world of personal development um, is full of people telling you that if you don't forgive, you'll be forever damaged. And I, I suppose there is some medical, well, some scientific evidence to show that having a forgiving attitude certainly is very useful for your public, for your health, and therefore a very good public health tool. But at the same time, I think telling people they should forgive is very detrimental and can re-victimize people. So I just think it's a, it's, it's a very nuanced discussion. And I think one of the things I wanted to do with the Forgiveness Project as a journalist was to present forgiveness with all its complexities and the stories are all different. You know, the 140 stories now that I've collected, every one of them shows a different journey and a different path. And all of them have different definitions for forgiveness, what it means to them. That I'm even personally very reluctant to pin it down to definitions even, because it means something different to everybody. Well, I'm curious when you say that public opinion is split down the middle uh, and that one half say or a large number of uh, respondents would say that it lets uh, perpetrators off the hook and uh, I guess the suggestion is is, is that uh, if you forgive a perpetrator and let them off the hook, then they will uh, commit violence again. Yeah. I'm just curious if in your study of the concept and the conversations and the many stories you've explored, whether you see that to be true very often? The only time I think it can be true, and I have seen this happen, is in situations of domestic violence, where actually Desmond Tutu puts it really well. He talks about um, releasing or renewing a relationship that's been abusive. And he talks about you can release a relationship, walk away from something and still forgive. And I think there is some, some people think that forgiveness means reconciliation, that you have to put up with bad behavior. And I've certainly seen that happen where people stick, keep forgiving somebody, and keep going back to somebody and keep getting further abused. And that's where I think, you know, those conversations need to be had because Forgiveness doesn't need, mean reconciliation necessarily. It's something that's very deep within your heart and you can easily forgive and walk away from a situation. Well, I'm interested in your conversation about forgiveness and you've posted a really interesting essay uh, on your website, theforgivenessproject.org. Um, you wrote that Terry Waite, who had been held hostage in Lebanon for many years, said that a useful goal is to truly understand why an individual or a group is resorting to violence. Would you say that 
that kind of curiosity is missing in most cases of the use of violence? Because I'm thinking of what you had just said, which is you, you can you can continue to forgive, but if you don't make the concerted effort, which is very difficult sometimes to really truly understand why an individual is resorting to violence or acting out that way, then there's something, a big step seems to be missing. Yes, I do think one of the key attributes of a forgiving person is curiosity and part of that curiosity is wanting to understand why people behave in the way they do and it's the first step towards building empathy I think and compassion and if you don't have that desire to understand what makes people tick why they behave the way they do then you get quite stuck in black and white thinking and that is in a way the enemy of forgiveness black and white thinking because you just decide what's right and what's wrong and that if people don't behave like you behave then um, that's wrong so it's a very judgmental position and I think people who who get to a point where they want to forgive and it can take many many years decades sometimes they always break through and they're they broaden their perspective broadens basically, so that they're able to see life um, from the other person's point of view. And that doesn't mean to say you're condoning what happened. It simply means, as one person I interviewed said, and her father was killed in a terrorist attack, and she said of the man who planted the bomb, who she now actually works with to build bridges of peace, she said, if I had lived your life, perhaps I would have made your choices. And I think that's a very powerful statement. How do any of us know, really, the choices we would have made if we'd been born with someone else's brain, into someone else's community, with someone else's experiences that lead them down the path of violence? As a journalist, do you find that that particular curiosity is especially missing in um, news reporting on nation-to-nation uh, -nation violence or individual violence on a local level when a, a criminal commits a murder? I think so. On the whole, that is true. I think the stories we hear are very one-sided very often. They tell, they tell a particular line of a particular conflict. One thing I have noticed, actually, in the last 10 years, that transformative stories... Um, I call them restorative narratives, if you like, people who have sought compassion, empathy, have, you know, perhaps met the met their perpetrator. These are far more common than they ever were. In a way, they map a way forward for us. They show us that it doesn't have to be this endless cycle of conflict and violence and revenge. Well, I would say the notion or the term restorative justice is not something we heard very much of 10, 15 years ago, uh, and I think it's a little more prevalent now. Yes, indeed. Now, Marina, the story of Amy Beale's family forgiving and then partnering with two of her killers in the South African story, it's the story we're telling on our program today. What do you find most compelling about this particular story, which you also featured in your project as well? In 2003, I met Linda Beale um, in South Africa and um, two of the young men who were responsible for her daughter's death. I interviewed Easy and Linda and it was quite difficult because the day before there'd been a documentary about Amy Beale's murder and Easy and Tembeko were really upset 
because in it they had been called killers and it was just it wasn't done with any compassion and you know many people would say well why should it be but they were continually trying to reinvent themselves and and I think Linda totally got that she said you know to me they don't see themselves as killers and and easy said to me I'm not a killer I've never thought of myself as such yet they got caught up in in the violence they were led that way and easy also said he would never join another political organization again because it had um, messed up with his mind brainwashed him I also something that Linda said to me which was very moving she said that a, she found there was a little bit of Amy's spirit in those boys, in Easy and Mbeko. And and I could understand that in a way. Not only had were they the last to see her daughter alive, but also their restoration, in a way, puts meaning into a senseless murder. And there's been quite a lot of research into victims of homicide or survivors, people who cope better, are able to to make meaning and make sense, make some sense for themselves out of a terrible trauma. And it struck me that that's exactly what Linda had done by founding this organisation, by employing these young men who killed their daughter, her daughter. And it was a remarkable relationship that they developed, a very parental one in a way, a very caring one. And it's great that they're all still working together still. You know, you wonder if these things can last. But 12 years since I've actually been to South Africa and met them, they're all still working together for the Amy Beale Foundation, which is a remarkable testimony, I think, to their willingness to try and change the world that they live in. And for Easy, very much about making amends, about putting something back into society. And also, Linda talked a lot about Ubuntu, and Ubuntu is a fantastic concept, I think, meaning my humanity is inextricably caught up in yours. This sense that we're responsible for the society we live in, basically. You have woven in to our conversation um, perfectly, you know, some uh, examples of, of some of the stories that you've told that have illustrated some of your points. But I'm wondering before we sign off if there is a particular story in the Forgiveness Project that you haven't mentioned that you think is extraordinary in, in a way that you can tell our listeners in a, a brief uh, amount of time? A story that probably some of your listeners will know is that of Bud Welsh, whose daughter was killed in the Oklahoma bombing. And what I like about Bud's story so much is that uh, for a whole year after the terrorist attack by Tim McVeigh, he used to go to the bomb site every day, and he started drinking, and he, he his relationship suffered, and his job suffered, and he was just full of anger and and sadness and and anxiety. And then one day he looked over at the bomb site and he said, "I need to do something differently because what I'm doing isn't working." And what I really like about the way he says that, and this is very common actually, is that forgiveness can be a decision. Because actually you can't exist in that place of hell that is so full of trauma and memories and pain 
that you need to do something differently. And the only thing you can actually do is to move towards compassion. And then he tells the story of how he then finally meets Tim McVeigh's father and realises he's met a bigger victim of the Oklahoma bombing than him. Because while he can speak lovingly of his daughter and everyone listens, you know, McVeigh probably doesn't even say he has a son. And then he also talks about forgiving the perpetrator. Now, Marina, we're recording this interview at a time when various citizens of the world have met their deaths as captives of the ISIS group as it tries to establish itself in the Middle East. And yet, in these individual cases, the families that come before the press after they've lost a loved one, um, a a percentage of them uh, immediately take the forgiveness platform. Yeah. Which is which is interesting. Yes, I don't hear it very often. Any of these families uh, going to the rhetoric of calling for an eye for an eye of somehow. That's very true, and I think it's because they've been so steeped in the violence and so appalled by it, they will do everything they can not to repeat it and not to further it. So, so to step into a place of love and compassion is much more restorative, and I can I can totally see that. I'm not sure I would be able to do it but I can totally understand that that is a space where you would want to occupy. They don't speak about revenge. It's more the politicians and and people who aren't so affected um, who talk about revenge. I mean, one of the stories that we collected, um, Andrew Rice, his brother was killed in 9-11, and he says um, those people calling loudest for retribution are so often those least affected. These stories are the extraordinary stories, often, of extreme acts of violence to people and people who are finding a way to forgive. Because I can imagine some people listening to this story and saying, gosh, that is amazing. I'm inspired by it. But, you know, I hope never to have to be in that position. I hope never to have to lose a loved one to violence and have to forgive. What do you see as, though, the applications? Uh, Because I see a life uh, that can, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, have these moments, whether you're cut off in traffic or whether you have a dispute with someone at work who's taking credit for your work, uh, relationships that are breaking up, uh, where forgiveness uh, is a key component. Uh, Talk just a little bit about what what the broader lessons or the smaller lessons that can be applied uh, from mm. these stories that, that, that you've found that people maybe have told you? Yes. I mean, one thing just to say is that when I was starting out, I'd done a lot of um, journalism around relationships and marriage breakups and things like that. And I particularly didn't want to go down that route at that time. I really wanted to collect these very extreme stories, as you say, um, in a way to grab people's attention, and I think it had that impact. But I've kind of come full circle now because in that 10 years, I've had so many responses from people who've read the stories and people who haven't had these extreme experiences and yet have learned from it and been inspired by it and taken something from what they've been exposed to. And it's made me really think that, I mean, I can't remember quite who said it, um, but someone said it's easier to forgive your enemies than to forgive your friends. And I come to really see forgiveness as the oil of personal relationships. I think without it, we can leave quite, lead quite miserable lives. And 
another reason why I'm interested now in actually collecting some, if you like, smaller stories, more everyday stories of forgiveness, is because when I look around me, I see so many ugly divorces, children not speaking to their parents, friends who are estranged from each other. This is really important work with forgiveness, to actually look at all our own individual smaller forgivenesses. Now, a lot of people out there doing really good work in that, which I don't want to repeat, but I think there's some, there's some really valuable stories that we can now collect and which I'm starting to. There's a whole other forgiveness project, I feel, which is about to um, blossom in this area of personal Marina Cantagazzino's book is The Forgiveness Project, Stories for a Vengeful Age. You can find a link to it and to The Forgiveness Project website at our website, along with more about the backstory on the Amy Beale Foundation. Our website is peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear this program again, hear longer complete interviews with all of our guests, or follow other useful links on the topic of forgiveness, all at peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002. We have a free podcast on iTunes you can subscribe to. You can also order CDs of our shows and help support the series with a tax-deductible contribution or used car donation to Good Radio Shows Incorporated, the nonprofit organization that produces this program separate and apart from your public radio station. Again, that's all at peacetalksradio.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. In addition to support from listeners like you that is so vital, we receive support from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Days Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. Special thanks to Megan Kamrick. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.